Pushkin. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I am Graham Wood, and I wrote How Bronze Age Pervert Charmed the Far Right for the Atlantic, and it's the story of the week. Back in 2016, I interviewed Milo Yiannopoulos in his apartment in London. Milo was then the troll leader of the alt-right. He wrote all these articles for Breitbart that advocated ideas that horrified anyone who was in power. So when I asked him why he went to events with the white supremacist Richard Spencer, he said, I don't see it as a bad thing that I surround myself with edgy people because they're interesting. I'm not going to not hang out with someone because the New York Times calls him racist. To my surprise, I found out in those few days Milo was funny and well-read and an excellent host. I kind of enjoyed being around him, even though I hated every single horrifying thing he said to me. My article was called, Milo Yiannopoulos is the pretty monstrous face of the alt-right. Milo was so thrilled with that article that he texted me for years afterwards, inviting me to hang out. I never did, partly because I didn't need to. Soon, there would be so many Milos that you could not avoid them. Writing is hard. Who's got that kind of time when you're already busy trying to be Joe Stein? So he turns on a mic, maybe twiddles a knob, calls a journalist friend who's got an actual job. Auditory, single story, just listen to smart people speak. Milo Yiannopoulos has since faded into obscurity. 
So much so that the last time I heard about him, he was working for Kanye West's presidential campaign. But the far right has gotten themselves some new philosopher kings. These guys, and yes, they're all guys, call themselves the Dark Enlightenment. They're unapologetically racist, sexist, and authoritarian. Graham Wood wrote about one of their leading thinkers who calls himself the Bronze Age pervert for the Atlantic magazine. I did some pranks in high school, but I didn't go to high school with the comedy writer and the guy who played Ryan on The Office, B.J. Novak. So what was B.J. Novak's great high school prank? B.J. Novak's greatest accomplishment before he became famous for The Office was going to the Boston Museum of Fine Arts And he saw that there were these tours that you could take, audio tours, to tell you what you were looking at, why it was important, and so on. And he realized that if you took that out, that you could put in anything you wanted. And so he and a couple of his friends, they got a classmate of theirs to record a tour of the exact same exhibition that was at the Museum of Fine Arts, only narrated by a total madman, a guy who claimed that he was... Lev Davidovich Bronstein, which is the birth name of Leon Trotsky, and who, instead of just narrating what the paintings were, divulged his own crazy opinions, saying, uh, personally, I think this is a piece of crap, uh, and saying, (laughs) have to resist the urge to take sledgehammer, break open, and rip this scroll to shreds with my teeth. I feel like they read Palefire. Like, I don't know how else you come up with that idea. Yeah, it's brilliant, isn't it? And you know, the the people at the Museum of Fine Arts, they think back pretty fondly about that, that, that prank. But they also forgive you for a prank when you become famous. Who was the other guy, the one who did the Eastern European accent that you so expertly imitated? It turns out that it was a Romanian classmate of B.J. Novak. And this Romanian, his name was unknown until pretty recently. Is that his real speaking voice or he's doing a bit? It's pretty close to his actual speaking voice. So, oh, okay. He speaks with an accent, but he is a highly educated, highly literate, yeah. fluent speaker of English when he wants to be. So, the more he wants to screw with you, the stronger he will put on the accent. Okay. What's his name? His name is Costin Alamariu, and he had immigrated from Romania at the age of roughly 11. And you eventually come to meet this guy? Well, the Whisper Network of Nerds finally reached me, I guess, because <laughs> we had a friend in common who said to me a number of times, you got to meet my friend Costin. The guy knew him from high school. And this is while you were at Harvard? Yes, uh, that's right. This is in my, my junior year of college at Harvard. And Costin at that point was a math major at MIT. It's like an intellectual blind date? Yeah, exactly. So it's the two of us. And I think we spent the next two hours or so just walking around Cambridge, Massachusetts and talking about whatever came to mind, which I think was basically his hobby. Did you like him? I did. I mean, he was fun. He really knew how to push people's buttons, say things that were outrageous, say things that might offend someone. You uh, hear a lot of things that you don't hear every day. What do you mean? What kind of things you don't hear every day? Well, like at the time I was studying Persian. You know, Persian, I would say the the easiest language for an English speaker to study that has squiggly letters. So it it, it is just unbelievably simple. And I I described that to him and he said, is it like Spanish where every time you speak a word, you feel your brain shrinking 
What does that even mean? I think what he was implying was that there are certain languages that are so simple that you don't feel that your brain is, is, is being nourished by speaking them. I'm on year four of Spanish Duolingo, and I still can't even come close to understanding it. Besides testing you and being kind of intellectually fun, did he seem really smart? He was clearly smart. He was clearly well-read. The things that he was interested in were not the things that you learn by taking classes, certainly not at MIT. We're, we're talking about 19th century social science, ancient Greek, and other subjects. He had a kind of old school interest that he was nourishing on his own. And for me, as someone who, you know, I like to think had curiosities of my own, I wanted more of this guy and I wanted to hear more of what he had to say. And there's a picture of him back when he was in college in the New York Times, right? Yes, that's right. He was wearing a trench coat with Teva sandals. He had a, a black bar over his eyes so he couldn't be identified because he was being oh. used to illustrate how badly MIT undergraduates dress. So to protect <laughs> his safety and, and, and future employment prospects or something, they were saying we, we, we shouldn't identify this guy. Little did they know that that wasn't going to be the thing that kept him from being employed. <laughs> so did you keep in touch after your blind date? I went traveling pretty soon after that. So we didn't really hang out, I think, ever again, actually, in person. We did trade emails quite a bit, but uh, that didn't last for too long. Wait, why didn't it last? Well, he would say increasingly offensive things that were offensive at the time, but I knew that he was testing, and so I, I didn't take the bait. And occasionally, though, he would note that some of my friends... I had said something that displeased him. I was friends with various journalists, and they'd write their political opinions, and he says, stop being such a, and then he used a slur against gay people. But eventually I thought, I'm not sure I need this in my life anymore. And I stopped responding to him. What's the weirdest thing he sent you? <laughs> At one point he sent me a picture of himself, and he was shirtless. He had clearly been working out, uh, and he, he wrote, do you like this pic of me? And uh, I don't think I replied to that at all. And I think the purpose of sending it was because it would be befuddling. He loves to befuddle. Uh, he's good at it. Really? It sounds, I am not at all fuddled. That seems just like a thirst trap. <laughs> yeah, it's objectively a thirst trap. But he may also have been trying to fuck with you. And the latter oh, is actually more saying. in character with, with who he is. Okay, so uh, you lose touch with him. What happens to him after he graduates from MIT? After he went to MIT, he became uh, an investment banker briefly. And eventually he ended up in a graduate program in political science at Yale University. Is that, you teach at Yale. Is that the, the department you teach in? Yes, just by chance. We didn't overlap at all. But in exactly the same department where I have been teaching since 2014, he was a graduate student. I feel like this is like Fight Club and we're going to find out at the end that he is you. <laughs> that would be the worst news that I've had uh, in quite some time. <laughs> okay, so he gets his uh, PhD from Yale. And while he's there, he's still doing this kind of BJ Novak era prank character, like in emails and other places, right? Yeah, I, I spoke with people who were grad students during his time there, and they said, oh, yeah, that, that guy, he would he would constantly be pushing our buttons. You know, he would write these notes to the graduate student email lists. They would say, oh, you know, our graduate student insurance doesn't cover dentistry. Can you help me with that? 
And then he would write back, my cousin Benko run Benko Magneto Gorsk Dental Emporium. He make good dental work in White Van at Grand Avenue East Street in parking lot outside plumbing supply store. You forward me small price of $100. He do work. Steel teeth, gold teeth, anything you want. He was fucking with everybody all the time. And what was his dissertation like for his PhD program? Uh, it was pretty weird. And it would be alarming if it weren't in a dissertation, which means that nobody reads it. Yeah. When I say alarming, I, I mean, it was about eugenics and tried to suggest that philosophy in Plato's mind was closely associated with eugenics, with, with biologically creating an elite. Wait, 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 that like Plato wanted to build a master race like Hitler did? That's exactly right. That's what that's what he claimed. That does not come up in the Republic from my memory. I would think at like a very liberal place like Yale that your dissertation supervisor is not going to be into that. That's true. I mean, toward the end, I spoke to his advisor, uh, Stephen Smith, who's a very distinguished political theorist, and who told him straightforwardly that, look, this is shameful. The idea that your parents would take you away from Romania and escape tyranny and totalitarianism so that you can write that eugenics is the way to go uh, was disgusting. Oh, his parents literally escaped Ceausescu, and then then he writes this insane piece about authoritarianism as his dissertation. That can't make parents happy. No, if, like Costin's parents, you have fled the most tyrannical Eastern European country, and then what do you find your, your kid doing? Going to the, one of the best schools in the United States and then writing about how tyranny is actually good and by the way, also having some of your family exterminated in the Holocaust and then writing that, yeah, eugenics wow. is also good. This was, I, I think, probably pretty embarrassing to his parents. Right, because he's also Jewish. Okay, so he, they give him the PhD. What, what does he do afterwards? He did get one of the very few jobs on the market, uh, which was a postdoc at Emory. That's a roll of the dice for Emory, though, after the eugenics uh, dissertation. So how long does he last at Emory? Uh, not very long at all, but for yeah. reasons that were, were pretty weird. He started teaching some classes, and then at some point, other members of the department heard from students that, oh, that guy Costin who's teaching us, he never shows up for his classes, and he's announced that oh. um, he's going to be teaching by email instead. So oh. his senior colleagues asked him, hey, what the hell's going on here? But apparently he had some physical ailment that prevented him from regularly being in the classroom. Okay, so then he leaves Emory. Apparently he says he's living out of a van in Argentina. How does Constant enter your consciousness again? He re-entered my consciousness because he had started to record a podcast. He had written a book. It's always very alarming to discover that someone has a podcast. We're not proud people. <laughs> so... When I heard the podcast, it was the same Museum of Fine Arts voice, a little deeper, but he was doing that shtick. And whatever slyness that he had uh, in direction about his views about fascism in his dissertation had disappeared completely. And it was 100% fascist, monarchist, insane racism. Full on eugenics and... Uh into racial purity, just it, it, he'd gone full bore on this. In the dissertation, you know, you, you have to ask yourself only once you've understood the paragraph, is he saying what I think he's saying? 
The only thing that you have to plow through in, in the case of his podcast is, can it be possible that I should take any of this seriously, given that he's speaking in this outlandish accent? But the words themselves leave no doubt the guy was an out-and-out fascist of a really antique variety. Like, we're, we're talking about 19th century race science. Like measuring people's heads to determine how smart they are by the race, right? I think, well, that, that's the origin of this, but I, I think he considers the head measuring portion of this uh, settled science. Okay, and he's not using his real name. He, he's pseudonymous because he's saying these really upsetting things. And so what name does he go under? He was recording under the name The Bronze Age Pervert. But why Bronze Age and why Pervert? Like, why isn't he the Iron Age normal dude? Like, <laughs> where does he come up with this? Yeah, so... Uh, Costin believes that Western civilization is a terrible error. The belief that humans are all equal, they have equal worth, that politics means compromise, that individuals have, by virtue of being human beings, rights. These are things that didn't exist before this tradition made them up. And he believes that in the Bronze Age, there was an age of man where people of great virtue, nobility, beauty, were doing amazing things. They were, they were physically stronger. They were mentally stronger. And so we need to go back to that age to create that, those conditions again. The pervert part, I have no idea. And from the bits I've listened to and read, it feels like some kind of bodybuilder who's also like Travis Bickle from Taxi Driver who wants to destroy all the cities and wipe away the dirt, all kind of by way of Nietzsche. Yeah, that, that's that's exactly right. It's a guy who has combined extreme narcissism when it comes to creation of a perfect body, which is also part of his, his view of the Bronze Age. He thinks that you need to cultivate your body, lift, and read the philosophers who have discovered the wayward nature of, of modern man and then uh, turn that upside down. Bronze Age perverts popular not just on like the dark parts of Twitter, but in, in Ivy League grad departments. Like, how is that possible? So those grad students, they've all read the Bronze Age pervert. They all know what he stands for, but they what? notice that their professors don't talk about him. They maybe even affect not to know who he is, but they do. And the reason for that is that First of all, he's funny, so people listen to him because he's, mm. he's amusing to, to, to hear. But also, he is attacking the very foundation of Western civilization. And he's talking about something completely different, where the strong are in charge and they crush the weak. That's not something that anybody has been arguing for politically in any American department for quite some time. So I think that there was this forbiddenness about what he was saying. And there was also the, the fact that he was, was arguing a position that nobody remembered how to rebut. It was just, it was so old right. that it was new again. And that meant that people were defenseless against it and they were fascinated by what they were hearing. And it's not just the podcast, he self-publishes a book. You said in the summer of 2018, it was among the top 150 books on Amazon. I don't know where your book was on the list, but my the ranking of my two books didn't have the same number of digits as that. Yeah, yeah, I, I have to say the same. I mean, somehow, if you publish your own book 
and you write it in the diction of Borat and you write the worst <laughs> possible things that you could think, then people want to read it. After the break, we'll hear about the people in power who follow the Bronze Age pervert and how they're planning a revolution. But first, our advertisers are going to make you an amazing offer on a ring light for achieving that perfect shirtless selfie for your totally straight fascist friends. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase, NA member FDIC, 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like this is this is not right how can a person get killed and no one knows anything I'm Jake Halpern and this is Deep Cover The Nameless Man listen wherever you get your podcasts and if you want to hear the entire season right now ad free subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus How popular is this book and Bronze Age pervert in general, his, his tweets, his podcast, it, with people who have actual power in the Republican Party? So the Bronze Age pervert, who goes by BAP, he tells his followers, don't tell people that you're a BAP follower. Use your Anon accounts, which I, it seems like pretty obvious 
advice, given that he's constantly using, you know, the N-word and saying things that, that suggest that you want to destroy the United States and, you know, <laughs> all of Western civilization. Surprisingly enough, though, there are a few people who follow him and say so openly, and they know not to, to tell people. But we're in high office. We're staffers for members of the House of Representatives. And BAP himself loves to post on his, on his Twitter feed images of his book next to the uniforms of the people who love him, which are, you know, sometimes officers' uniforms in the U.S. Marines or official passports from diplomats. I don't like that. That reminds me of what happened in Germany with all those people trying to attempt to coup in various places in the, the military and the police and government. That it gets scary at that point, right? Yeah. Once you got people who are working for the government, we know that's not good. But the very fact of this being underground means you, you can't quantify it. And, and you talk to some of them. I know Michael Anton, who worked for the Trump administration and the national security, uh, He's written openly about liking the Bronze Age pervert. I think, like, has Steve Bannon or and Peter Thiel also done the same, or have they been quiet about it? They've been more quiet about it, but they're they're okay. within the orbit of Bronze Age pervert. Uh, we'll call them Bronze Age pervert appreciators. I mean, Michael Anton, he reviewed for the Claremont Review of Books the Bronze Age mindset. That's Bronze Age pervert's book, and. I would say he was respectful toward it. He, he noted the things that are, are most odious about it. He noted the racism, the misogyny. But he said, look, this guy's got something going. And he he diagnosed the, the state of conservatism just by saying it's BAP versus Reaganism. And BAP is winning. This is the future of conservatism. I think he ran like a, a bank of some kind, right? Like he's a He's a powerful member of society. Yeah, I mean, he, he was a deputy national security advisor during the Trump administration. So yeah. this is a person who has had very, very important roles in keeping the international order alive and keeping Americans safe. And I, he had kind words for the Bronze Age pervert. And you talk to this guy, Vish Burra, who's a fan of BAP. Who, who's he? Vish Burra is a... a colorful figure who works for an even more colorful figure who is Representative George Santos of New York. I was interviewing Vish about something else, and I noticed that there was a copy uh, of the Bronze Age Perverts book behind him. So I, I asked him why. You just saw it in the wild. Yes, that's right. It, it, so I asked him, why? What's this for? And he said, basically, that, that the Bronze Age pervert uh, is funny He's a, a, a brilliant mind uh, and that there is quietly a, a crew of people who, who think that he's their guide. There's all these guys out there, men and women, by the way, who are followers of the Bronze Age pervert. And we have figured out ways to find each other, to meet at, at parties and to recognize each, other's, uh, each other as like-minded fans of the Bronze Age pervert. We're out there and we're not going to announce ourselves until we're actually at the controls. Um, we're not there yet. But Th that that's what he come. wants them to do. Him, all these dark and latent guys. There's this guy, Mencius Moldbug, who's also Jewish um, and also really smart. And they're part of this group that wants everyone to keep quiet about the fact that they think these things and follow these people until the revolution's about to happen. Yeah, they've seen what happens when you announce that you uh, hate black people. You lose your job yeah. really quickly. 
Um, and so they say, just shut up about it for a little while, and then yeah. you'll get into a position of authority, and then you'll do what you need to do. And this is the strategy like that you see with all those Pepe the Frogs on Twitter, which is you don't give out your real name, you don't give out your real face. And in fact, he's really hostile to people who use their name or their face. Yeah, I think the idea is that if you show your face and name, then you're doing that for your own glory. And what you should be doing is quietly making some friends and then infiltrating high office. If you can do that, then you'll actually be working for the, the nobler aim of subverting Western civilization. Have you listened to his podcast? Is it better than this one? <laughs> I do listen to his podcast. I, I, I will tell you, I wouldn't tell just anyone <laughs> that I listen to his podcast, but, I, but I, he remains really entertaining. I think that a lot of people who are just horrified by, by what he says would like him also not to be funny. Uh, it would be much simpler, a much simpler world if he were not funny. And smart. I listened to a bunch of it. It's it's amazing. If you listen to him, you will learn things about the world. So, okay, we were going to play a clip of the podcast, if you will, uh, if you will indulge us. America's Food Revolution. There is interesting article from City Journal 2009. Enjoyable read on how American food culture accelerating. That's something I'm inherently interested in, actually. That wasn't the kind of stuff I usually hear from him. But I'm interested in hearing about like turtle soup or whatever he's about to talk about. He's digressive and he's interested in a lot of things. What can I say? He doesn't immediately go toward the, the politics that will make you cringe. And he, he knows what he's doing. So he has thoughtful views on American cuisine. I, I'll, I'll listen to that. Absolutely. I heard him go off out of nowhere talking to someone on like ancient Greek etymology, just as a digression. And I was like, he knows a lot. Yes. And if you're someone who is disillusioned by your education, you can listen to this right. guy. And it's like a combination of comedy and politics and just learning about the world. And in between, you'll get things like recipes for carrot salad and all sorts of crazy <laughs> stuff like that. Now, it's actually very difficult to also overlook that, that it's filled with odious, racist horse shit. Yeah, I had to stop listening at some point when he got onto something that was, it was so awful and like fourth grade dead baby joke kind of like dumb, awful racism. It's so retrograde. And he also spent so much time telling you how he's not gay. <laughs> yeah. I, I, like out of nowhere. I wonder why. Not because I think that he's gay, but I think that the curiosity about his sexuality, about his physical body, it keeps people listening. And he will constantly on social media, you know, on Thursdays, he, he posts pictures of semi-naked, mostly men. And, you know, another person I knew in my youth, Richard Spencer, he was my lab partner in, in middle school in Dallas, Texas, and later became Wait, you, the leader you can't of the alt-right. just blow by this. Yeah. So. The, the most famous white supremacist, maybe after David Duke, in this country, Richard Spencer, was your lab partner in middle school. That's correct. Richard Spencer in Dallas, Texas, uh, was randomly assigned to be my lab partner at St. Mark's School in Dallas, Texas. Are you a magnet for like racist, fascist eugenicists? I don't, how does this happen to one person? I, as I say, I was randomly assigned Richard Spencer. I was not randomly assigned Costin. It was a little random. But this is starting to become a trend. So I, 
if anyone can can help me with this problem, then then please get in touch. In any lab partnership, there's someone who carries all the weight. Was it you or Richard Spencer? <laughs> I was a better science student than Richard Spencer. Yeah. Um, okay. That just I, making sure. I don't want to toot my own horn here, but uh, yes. <laughs> He's better at white supremacy. You were better at science. This all makes sense. But Richard Spencer, you know, he was plagued with gay rumors for for yes. a long time when he was the the leader of the alt right, and I wrote to him about the Bronze Age pervert and asked him, <laughs> um, "So, what do you think about all all this stuff? Do you think he's gay?" And Richard was a little testy with me. He said, "If I were posting every Thursday pictures of naked guys' asses, do you think anyone would have any doubt that I'm gay?" Mm. But somehow the Bronze Age pervert gets a pass. But yeah, he he spends a lot of time thinking about male physiques in a way that that I think people find awfully suspicious. And I think he also just knows that if he does this, people stick around. There's the fascination that that he either has or pretends to have is something that that gets uh, clothed asses in the seats, you know? And this is... uh, (laughs) This is what he wants. Maybe both. More, more, more people listening. Maybe all kinds of asses, clothed, unclothed. So do you think this guy's actually dangerous? In the end, I, I don't think he's dangerous. I think he's, I think he's actually good. <laughs> what? What do you mean? Look, he, he is arguing for a politics that would be, the, re, the result, result of it would be the deaths of millions, hundreds of millions, maybe billions of people. That is bad. That is bad if it is successful. I don't think it will be successful. What it will do is remind its opponents of the form that this argument once took. The fact that there are seminar rooms filled with political philosophers who don't remember the reasons why we have the political system that we have, why we have the tolerance that we have, is a problem. We want those people to be in fighting form, and they can only be in fighting form if you've got someone who is testing them. I like the optimism, but I'm looking at votes in all kinds of countries, including this one, and it doesn't seem like this thing is being combated. It seems like it's gaining speed, this this anti-democratic totalitarian impulse. Yeah, it's easy to find reasons for pessimism. I Google imaged Costin and I get like one picture, but you've seen him shirtless. So, you know, the, the big question I wanted to ask, smash or pass? <laughs> I'm told by others who have seen him that he was spindly. Uh, when I saw him, he, he, he was kind of ripped. By the way, smash or pass, did I answer that correctly? I'm, I'm not sure if I know the nomenclature there. Does that just mean, is he hot or not? Yes. Okay. <laughs> but once you refer to his nomenclature, it's uh, we've passed the, the fun of it. Graham Wood, you wrote how Bronze Age pervert charmed the far right for the Atlantic, and it's the story of the week. Thank you so much for coming on and for writing this story. Oh, thanks for having me. For my book, In Defense of Elitism, Why I'm Better Than You and You're Better Than Someone Who Didn't Buy This Book, I interviewed Tucker Carlson. During that interview, he said something to me which was really shocking, which is impressive when you're already psychologically prepared to interview Tucker Carlson. He said this, there weren't any democracies between the fall of Rome and the United States. Why is that? It's possible that in a country moving towards 400 million people pretty fast, it's hard to come to wise decisions in a democracy. You don't practice democracy for its own sake. You practice it because you think it works best. It's possible it doesn't really work at this scale. Wow. 
you'd have to be pretty arrogant to think that you'd be one of the very few people who's ever thrived in a society without democracy. But maybe that's what happens when you're the first one voted off of Dancing with the Stars. At the end of the show, what's next for Joel Stein? Maybe he'll take a nap or poke around online. Our show today was produced by Kate McAuliffe and Nisha Venka. It was edited by Lydia Jean Cott. Our engineer is Amanda K. Wang. And our executive producer is Catherine Girardot. And our theme song was written and performed by Jonathan Colton. And a special thanks to my voice coach, Vicki Merrick, and my consulting producer, Lauren Zelaznik. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Joel Stein, and this is Story of the Week. The catchphrase that he uses on Twitter is submit. What does that mean? Joel, do you mind if I not take that one? That's going to be complicated to explain. I feel like my producers are clapping right now. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentioned, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Wow.